Welcome back. This is the Sharp End Podcast. Happy January 1st, 2020. I've been doing this podcast for four straight years, bringing you an episode every first of the month. So thank you to everyone who has helped me make this podcast successful. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Protecting you while protecting the environment. Mammut is not only focused on integrating leading safety technology into every product so you can confidently push your boundaries, but also committed to continuing to preserve what is worth preserving and to improve what is not yet perfect. This episode is also supported by Kavu. Designed in Seattle, Washington, Kavu has been weaving fun into everything it produces since 1993. Kavu is an acronym for Clear Above, Visibility Unlimited, when there isn't a cloud in the sky and you can see all the way to the horizon. That limitless feeling is their guiding philosophy and the attitude Kavu brings to all they do. It means making the most of every day and getting out and doing whatever puts a smile on your face. Kavu clothing, bags, and accessories are an expression of this approach to life. Get busy living. Today, I talk with three folks who share their experience of a canyoneering trip that had a life-changing outcome. The three of them met up and planned to canyoneer the middle fork of Lytle Creek, which is in San Bernardino Mountains in the greater LA area in the beautiful state of California. And I'll let the three of them take it from here. Hi, I'm Becca Rogers. And uh, I've been canyoneering for about four years, lightly up until about the last year. I'm a birth and postpartum doula by trade. And I just, the wilderness is my sanity. Cool. Good to meet you. Uh, My name's Justin Pugh. I live in the LA area. Uh, I work as a filmmaker. I bounce between a few different outdoor activities. Uh, lately, for the past couple of years, it's been canyoneering, but I also do caving and rock climbing as well. Great. And I'm Eileen Bell. I've been canyoneering for about five years and caving. Um, also do a bit of climbing, mountaineering, pretty much anything that gets me outside. And do you all live in California? Yes. Yep. Yeah, we're all in the the Southern California, greater greater LA area, and we all met uh, basically through a uh, a caving NSS grotto, which kind of brought us all together. And since the LA area is kind of cave poor, there's not too many caves to do. Um, a lot of cavers that we hang out with just do canyons a lot because there's a little bit of a crossover skill set there. So. Um, that leads us to uh, to what we normally do in our story that we have to tell today. Great. Well, who wants to start off? Uh, I'll go ahead and I'll kind of kick us off here. Um, so it, it kind of starts off on May 27th, 2019, which is Memorial Day. Uh, the day before, I got a text from Becca just saying, just asking if I wanted to do a canyon with her and Eileen. I think they had some previously made plans that they wanted to kind of reconfigure a bit. So they reached out to me and um, I was kind of keen on doing a canyon that I hadn't done before. So after a little bit of conversation back and forth, we decided on a canyon named Lytle Creek, which is in the San Bernardino Mountains outside uh, San Bernardino and the greater LA area. None of us in the group had done it before, but uh, we had gotten some rain a little bit over uh, a couple of days before, maybe even the day before. 
and as it was getting into summer, you know, we knew we weren't going to be getting that much more flow in the canyons. So we figured that it would be uh, a good opportunity to seize and get into a nice canyon, a uh, reputedly nice canyon uh, that would hopefully have some good flow. So we got together. Uh, we went out there, went out to the trailhead early the next morning and had just an absolute beautiful approach hike, hiking down into the technical section of the canyon. There was a beautiful fog that had rolled in, and it was just absolutely spectacular. I had kind of kept my eye on the flow as we were hiking up the canyon just to kind of make sure that it wasn't anything that was going to be too crazy. Uh, we always try to, to monitor that uh, especially being in a canyon that we haven't been in before. Uh, a lot of the canyons that we have here in the Southern California region, they they run pretty dry early in the season. So, um, or well, kind of earlier in the summer, they usually start to kind of dry up. So when the water comes, it's kind of a mad dash in the canyoneering community in LA. And as I said before, this was kind of a, a probably a, a last opportunity to see a, a canyon that uh, has some some decently moderate flow to it. So, uh, so we do the approach hike. And as I said, it's absolutely beautiful. We're just having some great quality time with each other, just having conversations about how our lives are and our levels of happiness and, and just having a beautiful time. We get to the drop in point of the Canyon, you know, where we put on our wetsuits and everything like that, pack away our hiking clothes. And it was just such a beautiful time, such a beautiful canyon so far. And we hadn't even started the technical section of it that we just decided to take a moment and just kind of soak our environment in and meditate and just enjoy this beautiful moment. So we did that for a few minutes uh, and then we started right in and did the upper section of the canyon, which consisted of only three rappels. Uh, basically one right after another. And the longest rappel of that group was about 100 feet. And it's interesting because that's probably technically the most dangerous, quote unquote, section of the canyon because that 100 foot rappel didn't have great options for anchors. So there was some stuff that we kind of had to take our time with and rethink a little bit, make sure we were being safe as we proceeded, which we did. We you know used standard canyoneering practices I think we were all comfortable with the mm -hmm. the level of flow that was in the canyon. I didn't see any indication from either of my teammates that they were uncomfortable with the level of water. And uh, my estimation of the level of flow was probably moderate, maybe moderate high, but it was we felt it was all well within our skill level. Uh, and we had the right footwear for it and everything as well, which is a really important thing when you're canyoneering. So we navigated all that fine, and then we got down to the lower section of the canyon, which I believe is another another three rappels. There's five or six rappels total in the canyon, and so oh, so that gets you down there pretty far. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, when we do canyoneering, I mean, a lot of times we're doing we're doing rappels through canyons that have. I mean, depend on on where we're going, they might have like twelve rappels in it, uh, and that's after only a mile and a half hike to the drop in point. So depending on what canyon you're doing and what mountain range you're in, I mean, you get really remote back in these canyons and you have to be really careful about what you're doing because it makes rescue very difficult. And if all you're doing is just rappelling down through the water course, then it is simple and straightforward. But at any point, if anything goes wrong, you need a very high level of skill to get yourself out of that situation. And even if you have that high level of skill, you just might need outside help. Right. It seems very committing. 
It is. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And that's one of the things that personally speaking for myself, it's one of the factors I love the most about it. For those that don't know, I mean, the basic premise is you hike up uh, a canyon and then you you get to the top of a technical section and a technical section you can kind of define as any number of obstacles, mostly repels, but they could be anything else. I mean, potholes that you can't escape out of or anything like that. You drop in higher upstream before any of those obstacles and then you rappel down into the water course and you pull the rope. So the working theory is that once you pull that rope behind you, you're committed to the canyon and your only way is through the rest of the canyon. So you just have to be very mindful about where you are and then what you're doing. But the rewards of it are absolutely great because you're getting into areas that nobody can get to unless they have those skills. Mm -hmm. That's why we that's why we practice those skills and why we value those skills, because it gets us into these places that that not everybody can get into. And this canyon, Lytle Creek that we're in, I mean, it kind of has the reputation of being one of the most beautiful canyons in the area. And I mean, we were just having an absolute blast of the day. I mean, the conditions, you could not have asked for more perfect canyoneering conditions in Southern California with the quality of the water flow that we were getting. It wasn't too low. It wasn't too high. Um, the beauty, the beauty of the rock and again, the hike in, it was just, you just couldn't ask for a better day. It was, it was fantastic. So, um, so we do the upper section, which is about two repels. Uh, we get down to the lower section, which is basically, it's almost a cascade of three repels, one right after another. So we get to the top of those three and then Eileen sets that anchor. And, uh, do you want to take it from here, Eileen? Sure. So um, it's a series of three waterfalls and I set the anchor on the first waterfall, which goes down into a pothole. And then there's a ledge to the next rappel at the bottom of that. And uh, Becca went down first, followed by Justin. And then I came down last with the rope bag. And um, they were both sitting on a ledge to the left of the anchor and the water course, um, a dry ledge. And I was in the water course trying to get up on the ledge and I was having some difficulty, I think maybe because the rope bag was attached to me and I was trying to get up and Justin went to go help pull the rope. And I looked over for just a split second, um, toward the edge. And to my surprise, Becca was sitting on the edge for just the briefest moment. Um, and then she went over and I had this insane thought for a minute, like, Oh, that's maybe there's a slide there. Um, because I'd watched her just weeks before and, um, in another Canyon, go down these, these rock slides, sort of like pushing herself off the edge to go down the slides. And it looked just like that. And so for a moment I had this like hope, oh my gosh, maybe there's like this little ledge that I don't know about or something. Um, and then I saw that the anchor was definitely right next to her and that she had gone over, um, what I knew was a significant waterfall. Um, I wasn't sure the exact height of it. It turned out to be, about 80 feet. And I knew that there was not a fantastic chance that she would have survived a fall like that. Um, at that point, uh, I yelled something, probably yelled Becca. And then I yelled, um, 
to Justin, like Becca went over the edge and, um, he, uh, finished bagging the rope, um, remained very calm, finished bagging the rope because we knew that's what we needed to get down to her. Um, got up on the ledge, um, helped me get up on the ledge and then, uh, crossed over to set the next anchor. Actually, I'm going to jump in here because in this story, I just went over the ledge. Right. And I'm, take it from here. I'm really eager to hear what you have to say. Well, so I'm, I'm walking down along this little ledge and you have to cross back across the river to get to the anchor. And so I'm actually heading to the anchor to go clip myself in because it's just gorgeous at this ledge. It's such an amazing day and we're just playing. And all of a sudden I am slipping and I I just completely misread a water hazard and not seen it. And I am in a huge bed of algae in really shallow, but really fast running water. And I take three steps and each step in that I take actually brings me closer to the edge. So now I'm at the edge and I have a rock that's about four feet in that's sticking up that's surrounded by algae but I think that if I like throw myself forward I can get my arms around it but I'm going to smash my face and I'm going to be trying to hold on to algae that I clearly can't stand on I'm going I'm in a thick wetsuit so I'm also going to float and not sink very much I'm 100 pounds so uh, you know that doesn't help me sink, sink either and if I go over at this angle I'm definitely going to lose my life. So I'm, I also glance over my shoulder and I, all I can tell is that it's over 45 feet. I pass that. All I do is I see the bottom kind of like drop out and then spring up and then drop down. And like, I can't actually, in the amount of time that I can look down, get a reasonable visual of how far it is. Um, so, but considering my, my goal was my spine and my mind. If I can keep my spine and my mind, you know, I can live a decent life. And, um, and with that consideration and the level of, of success I thought I would have with the, with the roundness of this rock and the level of algae that I was in, I turned and I jumped and, um, like knees bent arms in front of me back as straight as I could head pulled in, you know, just seeking to be able to take as much of the impact as possible as properly as possible, never looking down because that would have started me, you know, tilting forward and was going to end this experiment. Um, and I'm, you know, you have a long time to think when you're falling 80 feet. And um, I definitely had the like, oh, my God, it's so beautiful out here thought. And and I also had the moment and I think it was about at 50 feet where I was like, oh, shit, everything that my body knows how to do to adjust for an impact is, is taken up. Cause you, you like time slows down a thousand degree, you know, percent when you're in a situation and you feel every fiber of your being and you're just using every tool you have. And, and then it just, Oh, I just ran out of tools and I was like, okay, something's got to give, I'm just going to give us what I have. And, um, I don't actually remember landing. I remember everything up until a second before it. And, um, and I remember, afterwards in the water and it was but that space was much more I'm in shock and I moved into that part of my brain that's lizard like and doesn't have language but does have an understanding of dimensions and um and so I was and all my only thought was oxygen because I jumped into one foot of water from 80 feet so it kept my feet from completely shattering I only had like five foot breaks between my ankles and and my 
metatarsals. Um, so I, and I just crawled actually on my, okay, let me, let me jump back for half a second. So the thing they gave was my femurs. Um, they came through my quadriceps in the front. Um, but I got to keep my spine in my mind and I'm so grateful and so lucky to be alive. So you landed, you fell 80 feet and then landed on your feet in a foot of water and your femur, your shins went through your femur? Uh, no, my femurs actually snapped in the middle and then both ends of them came forward through my quadriceps. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. Nobody okay. sees that coming. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I think I've got a good visual. <laughs> cool. Um, Okay, and so, and then, Justin, what were you doing? So, uh, I had my back turned while all this was happening. Eileen had come down the rope. She had observed Becca. Uh, once she had gotten off the rope, I started to pull the the other side of the rope down uh, and start starting to bag it so we could rig the next rappel. And uh, I heard her say, you know, Becca fell, Becca fell. And, uh, I knew she would not lie about something like that, but on the other hand, it was also really difficult to believe that I'm just like, she was just there. Like she had come down the rope. I had come down with her. We walked over to the edge. We looked at the drop and the rest of the Canyon. Like we were almost done with this. Like, like our day was, was almost over. And then I turn around and walk back to pull down the rope. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I'm being told that she's not there and it is just really difficult for me to believe. And I just had just this rush of just so many things at mentally at the, at the same time. Like, I can't believe, like, I can't believe this. Like, what are the odds? I can't believe this is happening to me. I mean, it, to be honest, it was, it was a series of, of arguably selfish thoughts, but I think they're very realistic thoughts for somebody in a situation like this to be, uh, to be thinking of, like, I, I can't believe this happened to me. There's no way I'm going to turn around and she's, she's just hiding on some other corner of the ledge that I didn't see. Um, but I, I knew, but I knew behind all that, that that was not true, that we had a real situation on our hands. But the only thing that I knew had to do at that time was to just pull down the rope, mm-hmm. hold the rope down, we bagged it. And I had, as I said, I had so many things running through my head and I became instantly terrified that I was going to make the slightest mistake that was going to endanger the rest of us. It's like, okay, if I let go of this rope and it goes over the next edge, then Eileen and I are up on this ledge and Beck is 80 feet below us. So as an individual that practices technical sport disciplines. I always tell myself and I'm always told and rightfully so that you need to practice and practice. So in the time that you need to be able to do something, you'll know what to do. And that is entirely correct. But what surprised me with where I was at mentally was the amount of things that my mind recalled from all different corners of my brain to use in that moment. And I didn't quite expect that. One of the things that, that was brought to mind was this, uh, was a saying that's used. I'm not sure in what branch of the armed forces that it is, but I believe it's, it's used in one of them. This, this saying that fast is slow, slow is fast. Yeah. And the idea behind that for anybody who's not aware of it is basically, if you want to try to do something 
fast. You go slow because if if not, if you just try to go fast, you're going to fumble and you're going to f- it up. But if you go slow and methodically, you'll be able to perform with maximum efficiency. And so that's what I kept telling myself. I probably even said it aloud to myself. I was like, okay, fast is slow. Slow is fast. Good for you. As cold as it sounds, there's a part of my brain that did not allow myself to think about what was happening with Becca down below us because I was completely powerless to do anything about that at that time because there were tasks that needed to be performed beforehand. So uh, I got the I got the rope. I went back over to the ledge. And to give a little bit better geography of the nature of the ledge, it was kind of circular in nature. And most of it was filled with water, a pool of water, which is basically what we've been referring to as a pothole. So there's the pothole and then there was a drainage, a spillover, basically. And right above that spillover was where the anchor that Becca had went to go and access. Eileen and I are on the safe, dry section of the ledge. Uh, and just like Becca before us, like I have to access that ledge to set the anchor. So I stepped in the water course right where she stepped. And I definitely felt that there was enough of a current there that would be problematic. And I definitely felt some algae there as well underneath. It was one of those areas where you definitely needed to be to be paying attention. You needed to be on your guard for that area. But fortunately, I was able to hold on to the anchor, clip in. I fed the, the rope through the anchor, played out probably about 100 feet and just set it like I normally do. But that whole time, I was terrified. If I messed this up, And if I rappel off of the wrong end of the rope, or if I don't set this block correctly, this issue is just going to be completely compounded. And again, I kept telling myself, like, slow down, fast is slow, slow is fast. I set the anchor. I don't I don't even really remember hardly anything. I remember the view from the top of that rappel, but I don't remember going down the rope at all. Because as soon as I safely got on that rope, my mind immediately went into what I knew I should be thinking about and doing next. So I got down to the bottom, got off rope, uh, and then I went over to Becca. And this is how badass, this is how incredible, incredibly strong Becca is. Before that, I had no idea what I was going to rappel down and see. I'm like preparing for the worst. I got down and I saw her probably about 10 to 15 feet away from where I think she would have fallen. And she's face up. And her legs are badly broken and she has a laceration on her on her forehead and her face is covered in blood. So it was immediately obvious to me that she had fell on her feet and face planted. But here she is 10 feet away from where she should should be laying and she's face up and mostly out of the water. And she's conscious. She's coherent. I can tell she's in an extreme state of shock. Um. And so I calmly go over to her and tell her that she's going to be okay. And she asked me, what happened? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what happened. Did I fall? I was like, yeah, you fell, you're hurt. And then she started to kind of ask me the same questions again. I was just surprised to be honest that she was in one piece and that she was conscious. So she was still laying in the water. It was very cold water. So I had to make the decision to either leave her there and, 
probably let her get hypothermia or pull her out of the water, not knowing the extent of the damages. And again, like we're all wearing full wetsuits. It's a little difficult to make a, a head to toe full body assessment uh, when somebody's in a wetsuit. But the priority I felt was to get her out of the water. So, so I did that. Uh, and then just comfort her and then, mm-hmm. and then, uh, just, just held with her, uh, till I saw Eileen coming down the rope. So, um, before I got down, I, I was able to look over the edge and see that she was moving, um, which was a huge relief, but she obviously was not in a good way. Um, once Justin went down, I realized that I now had to cross this water course, um, that was still not protected. And I was terrified of that. And at that point, we, it wasn't clear whether it had been algae or currents that had caused her to go over the edge. Um, and I was thinking, oh gosh, I'm about the same size as Becca. If, if the current pushed her over, is it going to be that strong pushing me over? And so I had a few very terrified moments of thinking, oh, how am I going to get to the anchor? And I finally eased myself back. Um, First, I I threw the rope bag over, which we don't typically do in classy canyons because you don't want the ropes to get twisted on the way down in flowing water. But I did not want that rope bag on me when I got back into the channel um, for added surface area to potentially push me down. Um, So I got back in where I had been before struggling to get up and sort of slowly worked my way down to the anchor, just kind of crawling on my stomach in the water. Um, and then got to the anchor. Once I was on repel, I, I felt some sense of relief, um, and rappelled down to her. Justin was holding her and, you know, making sure that she was okay. He had just moved her. He told me that he was going to, uh, go for help. Um, and so, he got on rappel, which was right behind where she was laying. Um, the ledge was, it was a sizable ledge. You could move around on it, but, um, it wasn't big enough to have anywhere that you could escape the, the spray of the waterfall that we could get Becca to. Um, and so she was just kind of there in the spray of the waterfall, which was quite cold. Um, even in, the end of May, um, it was shaded and the water was, you know, snow melt. Um, so it was freezing. And then I had to do what I could to take care of her. And Justin had left his first aid kit. I remembered thinking, picturing how I had tossed my smaller first aid kit in the back of the car when we left because I saw him pack his, which was larger. Um, so that was a fun lesson to learn, like <laughs> always, always bring everyone's first aid kit because um, the chances that one is going to be enough for a big accident like that are pretty slim. And you also don't know when people are going to get separated. If we had been on separate ledges and couldn't get materials to each other, that would have been also necessitated another first aid kit. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm wondering what you had in your first aid kit that would have been helpful for injuries like she had. Yeah. I mean, what I really needed was a ton of, um, elastic gauze and, um, cause she was bleeding pretty good or she was bleeding a lot. Yeah. Um, where the femurs, um, had broken 
I, she was wearing her wetsuit. And so, um, I couldn't see that at first. I could just see like, okay, this is, this is bleeding here. And she knew that her femurs were broken. There was clearly a lot of pain there. Um, and so I did an assessment and found that it had been quite some time since I took my, I had a first responder many, many years ago in college. Um, and pretty much all of that knowledge was pretty hard to access, um, at a time like that. Um, but I did what I could in terms of doing an assessment. Um, the wound on her head looked pretty bad, but, um, when I took her helmet off to treat it, it, I bandaged it and it stopped bleeding pretty quickly. Um, but she was sort of in and out of consciousness and her eyes below her eyes were starting to swell. And so I was real worried that she had some, an internal, um, brain injury and, um, she was conscious and talking through most of this. And I just couldn't get her, her legs to stop bleeding. You know, I examined everything and I said, Becca, I'm not, I'm not going to like set up a tourniquet. We're, we're going to, we're going to save your legs and we're going to get you out of here. I just knew that I had to like keep telling her that we were going to get her out of there so that we all could believe that. And, um, and I did believe it. And, you know, I just told her that she was really strong and, um, she was incredibly strong throughout the whole ordeal. Yeah. I tried to wrap her legs several times. I kept tightening it. And then I thought that she, had stopped bleeding. And then I would try and like put more clothes on her and try to mitigate the cold factor. And then I would see pools of water, like very slowly turning pink. And I realized that she was still bleeding and this happened several times. And I just kept rebandaging and tying tighter. And the big question in my mind was, well, do I cut this wetsuit apart? Because I was thinking not to save the wetsuit by any means, but not knowing how soon help was coming. Uh, I didn't know how bad the hypothermia would be. And clearly blood loss is a more important, um, more urgent need to fix. Um, but I kept thinking, oh, that's under control. And the wetsuit is helping with compression as well as keeping her warm, keeping blood flowing. Um, it was a tough call. Uh, Plus, I didn't know with the wetsuit on, you know, it's you can't properly assess all of injuries on someone until you get it down to the skin. Um, and this was something that I learned. I took a refresher first aid class um, about a month ago and I had a lot of questions <laughs> like, what do you do when someone breaks a bunch of bones through a wetsuit? Um, <laughs> and I had heard a lot of conflicting opinions until that point, um, saying like, oh no, like it's good that you left the wetsuit on. Uh, but the first aid, um, instructor was very clear. No, like you need to definitely cut all the clothes away so that you can really inspect the skin and see if there are any other injuries, because there could be a distracting injury, which, um, you know, might, that might be more painful to the patient, but that you can that distracts from something that's actually killing them. Um, and that, turn out to be partly the case. Her femurs were the most painful 
thing, um, but she had also broken her tibia and fibia on one leg and then her foot on the other leg. Um, those ended up not being the main source of blood loss. It was the femurs, but, um, but I, I don't think I even was aware that that was a major breakage because of the wetsuit. I did eventually um, cut one side of the wetsuit and was able to see that injury and then tighten it more but it bled so much when I opened the suit that I really thought hard about cutting the other side, thinking like, well, now it's started to clot onto the wetsuit. Sorry if this is getting graphic. I get like really <laughs> involved in thinking about it. Um, and so I didn't want to undo any clotting that had happened on the other side. Um, again, in retrospect, I think cutting to the skin as soon as possible would have been a better way to make sure that I could apply enough pressure to stop the bleeding. Um, I certainly stemmed it a great deal, but uh, given how long she was there and how much blood she lost, um, yeah, I wish I would have have done that earlier. And yeah, I just tried to keep her warm. I had to cover her with my body because that was the only thing that could keep her warm. We had clothes, but they soaked through very quickly. I'd put a raincoat around the outside and even that had soaked through. Um, I was freezing and I, I could at least get up and move. So I can't imagine how cold she was. And after a pretty short time, maybe half an hour, uh, Justin had appeared on the cliff above me. And then we waited another, um, it was three hours total. I think that we were down on the ledge waiting, but I'll let Justin tell his story of going, uh, after he rappelled down and went to go get help. Really quick. I want to ask Becca, did you, do you remember any of that? Yeah. It's actually amazing the way my mind just created a very specific sequence of events to, to feel safe. I remember crawling through the water to get to the ledge and just being focused on, it was about five feet, five feet to oxygen and rolling over onto that bank. And then the next memory I have is of just dark brown, warm man smell. (laughs) And (laughs) that's Justin hugging me. That that would be me. (laughs) And, And my next memory is of Eileen and her arms around me and just, I love you. You are so loved. You are safe. We are going to get you out of here. And that strength and that those arms hope. around me. Oh, that, that hope. That, that hope. That she faith. She gave you hope. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I just, I just, I felt so warm and so loved and so confident and at peace with we are going to do everything we can and everything is good. And, um, yeah. And then I remember Justin coming back. That's really the next actual memory I have. I have some, like vague feelings in the middle and I know it was a while but I don't have any memory that I could describe until Mm -hmm. I I see Justin reappear and then the memory I have after that is two and a half three hours later when I can see a helicopter attempting to get into the canyon and struggling so then Justin yeah you're at the top of the canyon you you ran out to get help pretty darn quick 30 minutes is fast um yeah, so we were definitely blessed in some areas there. 
so Eileen came down immediately behind me. There was the next waterfall, which was about it's about a hundred foot uh, waterfall. It's roughly about a forty five degree angle, and I mean. And again, like I was just, I was, I was super scared. I was like, I can't mess anything up. Um, so I set the rappel, I get on rope, I go down. And I mean, the, the, the push, the current on that last rappel, cause I was in it the whole way. I mean, it was just, it was really strong. And, uh, of course I was shaken up and, and managing stress as best as I could. So fortunately for us, that was the last rappel of the technical section of the Canyon. So I got off rope and went down Canyon and, uh, I got down a couple hundred yards, even if that, and, uh, the section of the canyon that we were in, it gave way to a confluence, which with a much larger water course. And, you know, I had taken my phone with me, which I had the whole time, and it had the GPS track pulled up uh, with, you know, the route back to the trailhead and back to the car. So I was just planning on just using that and going back to the point where I had cell service. But I just kind of had this idea once I got to that point of the canyon to just yell for help. I'm just like, well, I'll just go down the trail and yell for help and see what happens. And oddly enough, immediately, almost immediately after I call for help, like I turn around and there are these people behind me and they're like, what's going on? I'm like, my friend fell 80 feet and like, and we need to get help. And, uh, miraculously they had an emergency beacon. We went back up to as close as we could, which is basically the the base of that last waterfall. And we activated it. And, uh, as that was happening, we were like, you know, we could get a little closer. So we actually scrambled up the ridge that is basically adjacent to the canyon. So we scramble, we do the scramble up this ridge and cut over the side of this ridge. And we're basically on the, the ridge above the water course. So Eileen and Becca are about 50 feet below me in the water course. And I have the emergency beacon one of the gentlemen that we were with, uh, the, the people that were helping us went down Canyon to, uh, to make a phone call as a contingency. And it was actually a very good, uh, very good thing that he did that. So it's basically me and this other person that I had just met <laughs> on this Ridge with the emergency beacon. And now I am hesitant to go back in the water course because yeah, I don't know how well this thing is going to transmit once I get down into this water course. And then also, I mean, Eileen and Becca were in the spray of the water and it was cold. I mean, I was cold up on the ridge. So I'm like, you know, there's not, I couldn't see any immediate benefit to me going back down into the water course and then further exposing the three of us to even more hypothermia than what was necessary. And then also once I get down there, if I lose reception, uh, if the thing's not able to continue to transmit, uh, well, then that could potentially be a problem there. Um, what kind of uh, emergency beacon was it? It was a spot, just a one-way emergency beacon, no two-way communication. And um, so I'm just looking at this thing for a long time, just blinking red and green lights at me. And it was just several hours of feeling extremely helpless. Uh, as my friends were down there in, in this water course, as it, as I said, it was really cold. Um, the day starts to turn into the evening. I see the, the light of the Canyon slowly retreating 
And it just got to the point to where I was like, you know what, forget it. Like, I know Eileen and super, super cold. I'm going to go down and I'm going to uh, just see if she wants to switch. Because fortunately, and I had this option because fortunately, I had one other length of rope with me that was in my pack that I brought as just an afterthought. And it was just a short 50 foot length of rope. But I was up on this ridge, I was able to set an anchor around a tree and I rappelled down and the length of the rope was just perfect to get me back down into the water course. So I rejoined my friends, I told Eileen that she should probably go back up the rope and try to get warm and I'll stay with Becca. Uh, because at this point, it had been over three hours since the incident had, had occurred. And you know, we had no way really to communicate while I was up on that ridge because it was just all you could hear was water. Um, and so finally, we were able to like communicate with each other. And then I finally hear the more than welcoming sound of the thumping of the helicopter rotors. It took him a minute to find the right place. You know, I took my jacket off and was swinging it around like crazy. Uh, they sent somebody down. Uh, they lowered him. Uh, then after that, they sent a litter down. And then we had to help the search and rescue guy put uh, Becca into the litter, which uh, Becca, I'm really glad that you don't have any. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God that you don't have any, uh, that you don't remember that at all. <laughs> um, so we got her, we got her in the litter, we got her buckled up and then they went off the Canyon and up out of the Canyon. And fortunately for Eileen and I, I had that rope that I had used to get back down into the water course that we were able to, to take back out of the Canyon and then head back down to, to the trailhead. And, and then walk back to your car. Yeah. Yeah. And head back to the car. Wow. And one kind of nice interjection was um, the family that Justin got the spot from uh, one of them came back with him with a couple blankets and another first aid kit, which was, incredibly both of those things were incredibly helpful and they just you know just total strangers just gave us this stuff with probably no hope of ever seeing it again I think we did get that back to them but um they were just so willing to help and um it really it made a huge difference we needed everything or like a lot of the things in that second first aid kit and those blankets mm -hmm. um so that was heartwarming pay it forward yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So sure. so what were some of the lessons that you all three learned from this that um that we can share with the listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean it was it was a huge learning experience uh for myself as I mean I, it was for all of us. Apparently what had happened was so the gentleman that I had met further down the can the canyon whose name was Aaron, he ran down and event and came across some other hikers and they made a phone call. And, uh, and Aaron told them where we were. Unfortunately, they used that information from the location of the cell phone to triangulate the location of the canyon. And the helicopter was actually dispatched to the wrong fork of the canyon. So, and it was to the point, there was actually a very significant uh, search and rescue effort that was made to, uh, to find Becca. Uh, but unfortunately, they were going off of information that was apparently uh, not correct because it was triangulated by a cell phone ping. It wasn't until several hours to where uh, search and rescue received the coordinates for our location in the canyon. 
Um, yeah, I'll second that. The other big takeaway, um, just always protect access to the anchor. So if you can, you know, see that you can confidently get to the anchor and it's not a problem, that's fine. If there's any kind of water in the way, you just don't know. The algae that Becca slipped on was um, not green. We see a lot of green algae sometimes and it's like very obvious. Oh, there's algae there. It looks real slippery and scary. Um, this was not that at all. I really couldn't see it. Even looking for it, it just wasn't obviously slippery until you put your foot down and you slipped. We could have extended the rappel from the first rappel and stayed on the rope to get to it, um, which is what we did the next time that we ran the canyon and what we've recommended now in the beta that anyone doing that canyon with any kind of flow in it um, would stay on rappel so that they're protected until they clip into the next anchor. Just be vigilant. Don't rely on beta to tell you nuances like that. Just always look around, observe your surroundings, look at what's coming next whenever you're setting a rappel, think ahead to the next move. And then, yeah, the other big takeaway I mentioned earlier is uh, if someone's injured, expose the skin so that you can do a full head-to-toe check and make sure that you are addressing any life-threatening injuries um, and bring a fully stocked first aid kit. Wear your helmets, kids. Um, <laughs> saved my life. I, I had a small brain bleed, but um, I, I would not be present without um, mm. the helmet that I wore, the capacity of these amazing people, and, um, and modern medicine. And I, uh, I was helicoptered out of that, uh, that canyon. And uh, when I arrived in the hospital, they said that I was about um, five, five minutes likely, ten minutes max from passing. And wow. um, I'd lost over half of the blood in my body. And, um, and I'm so lucky to be alive. And not only to be alive, but be fully present mentally and emotionally and there's I mean there's so much emotionally that you process I really want to talk about a, a little bit about the fact that Justin and Eileen are processing so much especially when you sit there and you hold someone while they are going through potentially their last hours when you can't move there you have so much processing to do when you when you almost die like I did that that processing comes as you actually have extra bandwidth you're initially, your body is always working for you. It's always fighting for you. It's always doing its best. And when it has a little extra, then the processing kind of percolates up. My boots, my helmet, the, the gear I wore really saved so much of my body. And I am so lucky. How are you all adjusting now? I mean, that wasn't very long ago. That's, that was May. Six months. Yeah. yeah. So... How's the recovery? Um, it's going fabulously. I mean, hmm. your, your mental game is always your biggest, most powerful tool and your mm -hmm. tribe. And I have an amazing tribe and, you know, I have some decent tool resources and tools in my, in my bucket in regarding regards to the mental game. I'm currently learning how to walk. I had my last major surgery, a bone graft in my right femur six weeks ago. And, um, and I was, actually five days ago, officially declared device-dependent healed, which means... <gasps> Congrats! <yeah>. Thank you! <laughs> um, it, it's 
it's elating. I am so excited to get to to dance again and to, to get to Canyoneer again and to just to just feel whole. What an incredible story. Thank you so much to you three for sharing your story with us. Um, thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor of the show. And thank you to Kavu. I've been rocking Kavu clothes lately and they are awesome. They're cute, cozy, practical, and stylish. American Alpine Club members can visit gear discounts at AmericanAlpineClub.org to receive 50% off at Kavu.com. Remember, play hard and be smart. <laughs>